I believe it was the great uh, theologian Ron Burgundy um, from Anchorman who first uh, coined the phrase, well, that escalated quickly, right? I was getting ready for this message and thinking about how James opens, and it's in a similar way. And as I was thinking about this sermon and getting ready for it, I came across a few uh, pictures of, of some things that escalated quickly. The first one up here is uh, this one. Uh, what penalties would you like to see given to graffiti offenders? The, these are both grandmas. The top one, they should have to clean their own mess. That sounds like a good grandma. The second one, I'd like to see their hands cut off. That, that's a situation that would escalate quickly. Next. How do you kill, uh, you guys have all searched in Google for different things, bed bugs, a zombie, 11 million people. I don't want to know what this guy's search history is that produces that, but uh, that's bed bugs to zombies to 11 million people. That escalated quickly. Next, trembling associate. This is on WebMD. You're looking up, okay, I've got trembling. Why do I have trembling? Well, you could have diabetes, you could have cocaine use, or you could be a cannibal from Papua New Guinea, uh, and that's leading to your, your trembling. Again, that's, uh, that's escalating pretty quickly. Next. This is a kid. What are the three things you want in the future? I want to get a girlfriend, I want to kiss her, and I want to rule the world. I want to meet that kid is what I want to do. I, I, want, I want to meet that guy. But that's, uh, again, that, that escalates quickly. I think we've got maybe one more. Yeah, this one. If you had no idea what to get her for Valentine's Day, imagine how overwhelming arranging her funeral is going to be. Wow! Like, hey, slouch, you can't even find some flowers she's going to like. Imagine when she dies, and then you've got to arrange her funeral, and then you're going to feel bad. So just figure out something that she can enjoy for Valentine's Day. Anyways, we, we've all been in situations where things feel like they go from zero to 100 in the blink of an eye, and James kind of starts that way. He begins by introducing himself. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Okay, that's great. Awesome. And maybe we expect that James is going to go uh, to some grandiose, I thank God in all my remembrances of you, just like the Apostle Paul does, or that he's going to uh, turn to something and, and encourage us by um, saying, hey, I'm, I'm praying for your faith that you might be strengthened. But that's not the way that James begins. He gets right after it. He gets straight to the point. He doesn't cut corners in getting there. There's an urgency to this book, and we've talked about it. In fact, last week we said, why James? And James has written to us to encourage us as believers and what it looks like to live out our faith, that our faith should act, that James has written to us as believers so that we can know what it looks like to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, that James has written to us as believers in order to confirm our faith, to build us up, to encourage us, to give us a greater confidence in who we are as believers. And James is urgent about that message, and he's writing to a bunch of, of Jewish Christians that are spread all over uh, Europe at the time, all over Middle East and Europe at this time, and it's the Jews who are in the dispersion, and that's what that word means, that they're scattered, they're not at home, they've been driven away by persecution. And so James isn't interested in uh, small talk as he starts this letter. He's going to get right after it, and he's going to get right after it with a subject that I'm sure each and every one of us in this room can relate to. And it's the subject of going through suffering, going through trials in life, having things not go our way, not the way that we want them to go. See, as Christians in a Christless world, you and I are going to encounter opposition. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Jesus said as much. He said, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. He said, don't be surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised at the trials, at the fiery trials, when they come among you as if something strange was happening to you. Peter's been writing to, to Christians in his letter saying, look, you guys are aliens and strangers and foreigners in this world. 
This world is not your home. You don't belong here. So when it rubs you the wrong way, when you all of a sudden feel like you're out of place, when you go up against something that causes you to feel pain and suffering, he says this. He says, don't be surprised at that. And that's what James is going to address as well. He wants us to understand in this opening section that we're going to be looking at this, this evening together, how to respond rightly to trials. Not just how to respond to them, but how we should view them. Because it's when we understand that these trials aren't random, but that they're being used by God. When we gain that perspective, then we can respond to our trials the way James wants us to, confident that God is at work, even through our times of pain, even through our times of suffering. James, after his opening greetings, says this. It's one of the most famous verses probably in James. In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, my fellow believers. Count it all joy when you encounter, when you meet various trials or trials of various kinds. Trials. It's a word that, that means testing. It's a word that has to do with determining the character of something. Do you guys remember back when the, the iPhones were being released and they would come out and they would say, well, the, the iPhones are bending in people's pockets. Were any, any of you guys ever tempted to pull your phone out and, and see, does that really bend like that? Can I, can I bend that? You're testing the character of that product, right? I wouldn't recommend that because if it bends, then you're one of those guys on YouTube that's like, my phone bent and I don't know what to do now. But you're testing the character of that. Well, God goes to work on your faith from time to time, testing its metal, testing its character. Some of you have endured trials already. Some of your parents have divorced when you were younger, or divorced even when you were older. My parents got divorced when I was a senior in high school, and so I've been through that. I know what that's like. That's hard. That's a trial. That is a time where you endure pain and sorrow and suffering, and when you're tempted to say, why is this happening, God? Why is this happening to me? Maybe some of you have been betrayed by somebody close to you, somebody that you felt like you were supposed to trust in, that you could rely on. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a close friend. And they've turned their back on you. They've betrayed you. And so walking through that, enduring that, now you've understood what it, it feels like to be in a trial in that relationship. Some of you have been abused by people that are close to you. People who were entrusted with caring for you, with protecting you, with taking care of you. And instead, they flipped that on its head and they perverted their role in, the, in your life. And instead, they abused you. And that was a trial and a time of suffering and sorrow and hurt and pain that you went through. Some of you have lost a job. Some of you have lost a relationship. And you're going through the, the trial, the pain, the sorrow, the, the hurt in that. And when you and I go through trials, we have different responses to that that are just kind of natural to us. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you are old or young, the, the same thing kind of happens when you first encounter opposition, when you first run up against a trial, a time of pain or testing in your life. One, one of the most common responses, I think, is, is anger and frustration. Why is this happening to me? Why now? Why this way? Why that person? This shouldn't happen. This is not fair. And so we begin to become angry and frustrated over our circumstances. Another way that we can respond to trials in our lives is with disappointment. We feel that, that crushing despair take over because things are not working out the way that we had planned for them to. Or somebody that we had high hopes for has let us down and disappointed us. Another way that we can respond to trials is, is just with questions. Well, why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? What can I do to fix this? How can I get out of this? How can I make the pain stop? 
Where can I go to escape the pain? Or maybe for some of us, our response to trials is sadness and depression. Life doesn't go our way and we fall into a a despair. There's that funk that takes over us. Clouds our outlook on life. It's difficult for us to find even sometimes a, a reason to get out of bed when we don't have anything pressing that day. For others of you, trials are just obstacles to overcome. So you respond to them with grit and resolve. You white knuckle it and say, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to get through this my way and I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to get myself through this time of of pain and sorrow and I don't need anyone. Others of you may simply respond to trials with just motivation, not bad motivation, maybe just good motivation. You think to yourself, I'm going to learn from this and I'm not going to do things the same way I did before. I'm going to make changes going forward so that this doesn't happen to me again. There's a lot of different ways for us to respond to trials. Some of those I'm sure you've heard and, and you say, yeah, that, that's me. That's what I do. Maybe multiple of those were ways that you respond when life throws a, a difficult situation to you. But James says this. He says, count it all. What's the next word? Joy. Count it all joy. That word all beforehand is, is uh, it's a modifier and And in the Greek, it doesn't really come across the same way it does in our English translations. What he's saying here is find genuine joy in the trial that you're going through. In other words, James is saying, don't just put on a a stupid grin on your face and act like everything's fine because after all, we're supposed to count it all joy. He's saying, no, there is truly genuine joy to be found in the midst of a trial. That word joy in the Greek is a word that means happiness, gladness. As you and I would think of the word joy, it's a a word that we don't think about too often when we think about trials. We'll look at why in a minute here, but James is saying that our identity in, in Christ now as believers has put us in a position to respond to trials, to respond to difficulty, to, to respond to, to testing in our lives in a way that doesn't come naturally. James is saying now for you and I to respond to trials as believers means finding joy in a situation that shouldn't produce much joy from the world's perspective. Our first point tonight is this, discover the joys in the pains of life. Discover the joys in the pains of life. I've heard, I have not experienced, though I've been in the room for it, I've heard that childbirth is excruciatingly painful. Guys, you will grow up and get married and then you lose all right to complain about pain, okay? After your wife has a baby. Because it's like, oh, did you give birth? No, I didn't give birth. I just broke my femur, but fine. What, you win, right? I mean, like, the pain of childbirth, I've, I've just heard that it's, it's one of those things that it's a miracle that anybody has more than one baby. Because after the first, I, you just don't know why you would have another one. But people do. Why do people have more than one kid? Why do I have five kids? Because God, right? Because God is sovereign. He decided, PJ and Amanda, you're going to have five kids. No, but why do you have more than one kid? Because the pain is what? Worth it, yes? Because what the pain leads to, what the pain produces, are these cute bundles of joy that are floating around the room right now. That as long as they're not screaming and keeping you up at night, you like them. And eventually they stop screaming and keeping you up at night. And that's when you go, hey, maybe we should have another one of those. And so then the, the pain, all of a sudden, you can look at the pain of the process of childbirth and say, you know what, there's joy to be found even there because I know what is coming. 
I know that this is not just pointless. I know that this is not just meaningless. I know that there's an outcome to this, and the outcome to this is something that is going to be for good for me and for my family. And so this is worth it to me, and there's even joy in the process because of what it's producing. And see, that's what James is driving at with us. He wants our mindset now as believers in Christ when we encounter trials to say, okay, God, what are you doing in me right now through this time, through this time of hurt, through this time of pain, through this time of sorrow, through this time of of trial? And to be able to find joy in that because we know that God is still at work in our lives. James says this in verses three through four. He says, count it all joy. And he says in verse three, for you know, you understand, you are aware, you know that the testing of your faith, which is what a trial is, it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James gives us three reasons why we should discover joys in the trials of life right here. The first one is this. Trials should be met with joy because they refine your faith. They refine your faith. Like precious metal is refined in the fire. The dross is is burned off. And for the dross, that's not a fun experience. The flame is bringing the imperfections of the gold to the surface so that it can be removed so that what's left is a purer product than what was there to begin with. And James is saying when he says the testing of your faith, that word testing is the same word that was used of refining metals. And so James is saying here there's a joy in the midst of trial because God is refining your faith. He's purifying your faith so that the product that's left after you come out on the other side of the fire of the, the trial that you're going through is a stronger faith, is a purer faith than what you had before you went into it. And so we can find joy because these trials refine our faith. But we can also discover joy because these trials produce steadfastness. Steadfastness, it's a, a word in the original that means to be able to hold up under pressure. Or bear up in the face of difficulty. God uses trials in our lives like we use weights to build up muscle. Muscle of our faith. Muscle muscle of our, our relationship with Christ. So the suffering that you are now patiently enduring. The suffering, the trial that you are now currently walking through. Is creating a spiritual muscle that will make you more apt and more ready. And more able to bear up under future trials when they come your way. We recently, not long ago, got an exercise bike in our house and we put it upstairs in our bedroom to force us to ride it. Otherwise, we just are lazy at the end of the day when we see it and we go to bed, right? Well, riding that, sometimes you do a hill climb and a hill climb is, is just hell on earth because you have this guy that's way stronger than you on a bike on the TV screen in front of you telling you to crank up your resistance until you can't breathe any longer and your legs are gonna fall off. But at the same time, you know that you're working towards an end. And eventually after you ride for a month or two months, you realize that the resistances that once were difficult for you are no longer hard for you. Why? Because you've built up the muscle. Your physical fitness level has changed so that now you're able to handle that opposition and it's not as big of a deal anymore. Well, the same thing takes place for us as believers with trials in our lives. God is building up that steadfastness in your life. He's forming that spiritual muscle in your life so that next time you encounter a trial, it's, it's not as much of a jolt to you at the outset. Your default is to immediately say, okay, God, you are in control and I'm trusting you through this. Rather than, why is this happening? What's going on? And how can I make it stop? 
Other times, God is also going to use these trials in our lives. Third, the reason why we can rejoice is because he's going to use them to make us more godly and more Christ-like. And that's what he means when he says that it produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That trials sanctify us. They make us more like Christ. Trials produce in us a, 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 a trust in the Lord that we didn't have before that. Think about the, the stories of Joseph and Job from the Old Testament. Think about Joseph's confidence in the sovereignty of God after going through everything that he went through, betrayed by his brothers, thrown into the pit to be left for dead by all accounts. And then they see the, the Midianite caravan coming through and they're like, well, let's, let's sell him to the, not the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, let's sell him to them. And, and then he's with these foreigners and he's going who knows where. And then he ends up in Pharaoh's uh, service and he ends up being falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. And then he ends up, in jail, and then he, he's got these weird dreams. Think about everything that Joseph went through, and then to the point where he's the number two in all of Egypt, and his brothers are coming back to him. You don't think he had a better understanding of God's sovereignty over his life after going through trials than he would have if he never endured any sort of suffering? See, his faith was made better, more complete because of what he endured. Or Job, everything that he went through. I mean, we know about who Job is. Why? Because he suffered. That's why we know Job. Otherwise, he's just a guy. He's just a guy. But because Job went through the suffering and because he went through this, the suffering well and trusted the Lord until the, the end there when God kind of put him in his place temporarily, but then he, he recognizes Job understood that God was powerful, that God was in control. And so he was being made more perfect, more complete in that sense. But the other thing, guys, that, that trials do for us that we can count a joy is that they separate us further from our affections for this world. Because trials will reveal to us those things in our lives that we trust that don't satisfy us. When a relationship ends, it may reveal to us that our hope was in that relationship instead of being fully and in, in, in foremost in, in Christ. Does that mean it shouldn't hurt? No, that's, it's going to hurt. And I understand that and I get that. And, and, and that's real pain that you're feeling. But Count it a joy because you're being reminded that you have a God that's not going to let you down. And he's strengthening your affection for him and, and separating your affection for the things of, of this world. Or maybe you've got these substitutions in your life, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it may be, that you continually turn to thinking these things are going to satisfy. And when they don't and when they let you down and when they leave you feeling broken and feeling dirty and feeling ashamed and feeling like you're just a, a wretch when you're at the, the bottom of that, that crash, that's that moment to, to remember that God is there, that Christ has died for your sins and that God wants to bring you back to himself so that you will realize that your affections need to be for him. Your satisfaction needs to be found in him and not in the trinkets and the, the substitutes that this world offers us. Promises fail us. Our confidence in ourselves fail us and trials are God's gift to us to reveal to us that our confidence, our hope shouldn't be in these things. They sanctify us. See, the untried faith is a faith that is untrustworthy. If your faith has never been tried, you have no confidence to put your trust in it. Recently, I was watching something where Alex Honnold, I'm fascinated with that guy. I'm just absolutely fascinated with that guy, the free climber, the, the insane guy that climbed your half dome and eats out of a skillet in the back of his minivan. Um, Anyways, they were talking with him, 
And the guy said, you know, do you replace your rope on every climb? And he kind of like laughed at that. And he was like, no, no way. Most climbers have their rope and they use that rope over and over and over and over and over again. They're not going to grab a new rope that they don't know anything about and go climbing with that. They're going to use the rope that's what? Trustworthy. It's reliable. They've been down the mountain with it. They've been up the mountain with it. They know they can lean on it. They know they can rely upon it. Guys, that's what trials do to our faith. They make it trustworthy. The trials that the Lord allows in your life, it's going to steal your faith and strengthen your resolve and make you a more complete Christian. James keeps going. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. This feels like a left turn. James has been talking about trials. He's been talking about counting it all joy and that the trials produce steadfastness and trials produce endurance and we should be counting it joy and looking for the joys in that. And now James, you're saying, oh, by the way, if you lack wisdom, ask for it from the Lord. Well, here's why he does this. When trials hit, again, what's often our first response? We talked about some of these. Most often is why? Why? Why is this happening? Why now? Why me? Or maybe if something didn't happen for you, why not? How many of us, is our first response when we run up against a trial to go to the Lord and ask for wisdom to be able to endure the trial? See, that's what James is talking about. He's saying when you encounter trials, your first turn needs to not be inward to say, why me? It needs to be towards the Lord. It needs to be Godward to say, okay, God, if I'm going to make it through this, I need wisdom from you to be able to do this. It says, trials make you perfect and complete right before this, lacking in nothing. But he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask for it from the Lord. Wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge in action. Knowledge applied. It's sound living. Knowing how to up- navigate the, the ups and downs in your life. It's a necessary component to following Christ. And James is telling us here it's a necessary component to enduring trials. Point number two tonight is this. Get that. Get wisdom from God. Get wisdom from God. You guys have heard the dichotomy, right, between book smarts and what? What's the other side? Street smarts. Somebody who's got book smarts, man, that that may be great in the classroom, but then when they get out into the real world, if they don't have street smarts, that book smarts isn't going to carry them very far, is it? Street smarts is often going to make us or break us in this life. And I think James is telling us that trials produce street smarts in believers, spiritually speaking. And we need to go to the Lord and ask for that wisdom and ask for the, the street smarts that, that the trials produce in our lives. See, we can have the book smarts. We can know the theology that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is good, that God is loving, that God is holy, that God is just. We can have all that up here. But when we encounter the, the rubber meeting the road and life doesn't go the way that we want it, now is when the, the street smarts of godly wisdom needs to kick in. And God is going to teach us what he wants to teach us through the pain and through the suffering and through the trial that we endure. In Job chapter 28, I encourage you to read it when you get a chance, but Job chapter 28, Job is asking the question, where can wisdom be found? And he's saying, look, it's, it's not found anywhere on earth. He says, you can't search for it and find it. It's not hidden. You can't go mine for it in the depths of the earth and come up and be like, look, I found all this wisdom and some gold, but I'm going to keep the wisdom. It, it, it doesn't work that way. And then he says also, you can't buy it. Wisdom isn't something that you, that you can pull out your, your debit card and say, or your Apple Pay or whatever, and say, okay, how much is it going to cost me to get that wisdom that I need? 
And he's saying it's, it's nowhere on the face of the earth. And so then the, the conclusion, he says, so then what, what are we to do? Where can we find wisdom? And the conclusion that Job reaches is the same conclusion that James reaches here. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let, us, let him seek it from who? God. Let him ask God. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, God's not going to mock you for needing wisdom. He's not going to condemn you for needing wisdom. He's not going to look down his nose at you and be like, I, th- I thought we went over this already. Why do you still need wisdom to navigate this trial? James says, no, he's going to provide it for you generously. How? How can we get this wisdom from the Lord? Well, number one, it starts with a relationship with Christ. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you cannot have the wisdom of God. Those two go hand in hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Paul there says that Christ has become to us the wisdom of God. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, this wisdom that James is saying is so necessary to endure the trials in your life, it's beyond your reach right now. But I want to also encourage you, if you've been up against it and your life has not been going the way that you want it, perhaps it's because you lack this wisdom that can be yours in Christ. So let me encourage you tonight, choose Christ. Repent from your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Gain access to this wisdom that will transform the way that you endure suffering and pain and sorrow in your life. So the first thing you do to gain this wisdom is you have to start with Christ. But the second thing is, he says, let him what? Ask God. So the second key to the wisdom is being in God's presence through prayer. To go to the Lord and actually put words to this request. God, I need wisdom for this trial. Let me encourage you, be specific with God. Test the promises that he has made, that he will give generously to you. Don't let God off the hook with simple requests and broad prayers. Ask directly, specifically, God, I need wisdom for this dating relationship I'm in. I need wisdom for this decision about whether or not to to go back to this school or not. God, I need wisdom about whether or not to quit my job. God, I need wisdom about whether or not to break up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Go to the Lord and seek that wisdom and go specifically. And God says that he will provide it generously to you. And so you get wisdom through prayer as well. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it's another great reminder of God's graciousness to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, there the apostle Paul says this. He says, look, if if God did not withhold his own son from us, but freely gave him up for us, then Paul says, how will he not with him graciously give us all things that we need? Right? If he didn't withhold Christ, why would he withhold wisdom from you? Christ costs far more. A third way to get wisdom is to get in God's word. Not just God's presence, but God's word. Spend time in the scriptures. We're going to talk in just a a week or two about being doers of the word and not just hearers. And so I don't mean just some mystical, you know, magic eight ball, open up the Bible to wherever you want and ask God what you should do. And I also don't mean some like exchange of, okay, God, I'm doing the daily Bible reading, so now will you work things out in my life? No, I mean gain the practical everyday wisdom of what God wants you to do by reading God's word and reading the commands in God's word and saying, okay, I'm going to do those things. Finally, get, get wisdom through God's people. 
being around the, the church, being around other believers, seeking them out. Y'all, this is why the bridge is such a great asset to y'all in this regard, providing wisdom for you. When you're going through a trial, you have a small group. You have a built-in network of, of brothers or sisters in Christ that love you to go to and ask for prayer during the trial that you're going through. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to pray with you. Ask them to pray that God would give you the wisdom that you need to endure the trial. But you also have an opportunity to show up here at the bridge and to hear more teaching and to gain more wisdom through the instruction that's available to you through the preaching of God's word. And you also have the opportunity to seek counsel and advice from people in the room to gain wisdom from them. You guys know that, that we also do counseling here at the church. All of us as pastors do. I do counseling as well. So I, I'm open to you guys. And by the way, that's free. I know the world will charge you out your nose to come in and talk to a shrink on a couch that's going to tell you that you've got daddy issues. I'm not here to do that. I don't charge you anything. And you can come in and we can sit down in my office or we can meet for coffee or whatever. And we can work through and, and you can seek wisdom on what's going on in your life. So just, again, the, the bridge is such an asset to you in that Take advantage of that. The temptation that we're going to face as James addresses next is to be double-minded, to want to sometimes look at the world and say, okay, but, but it's easier to do it the world's way rather than continually going to the Lord and saying, okay, God, no, I'm going to look to you and, and depend on your wisdom and what you want me to do. And when we look to the world, what we're doing there is we're trying to short-circuit what God's trying to do in our lives. We're trying to cut that off. We're trying to, to cut it short. We're trying to, to delay or, or avoid what God really wants to do in our lives. And if we believe what Romans 8, 28 says, that God causes all things, including the trials in our lives, to work together for good, we need to not try to short-circuit what he's doing through the pain that you're feeling right now. But trust that he's working for your good even in the pain. And so James says in verse 6, let him ask in faith without doubting. The doubting here is not, okay, God, are you really going to give me wisdom? Or can you give me wisdom? Or are you able? No, the doubting is this idea of, well, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this, but but this seems easier over here. That's why he says, for such a person is a double-minded man, a two-faced person. He compares him to a wave in the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. If you've ever been out on the ocean on, on a boat, not necessarily by the shore where the waves are predictable, but when you're out there in the the further offshore and you, you notice that the waves, especially when the, the wind is chopping, it just seems like they're going in one direction one minute and then another direction the other minute. James is saying when we're doubting, when we're not looking to the Lord for wisdom and the wisdom that we need to endure trials, we're like that. We're unstable. He says we're a double-minded. We waffle back and forth between trusting the world's way and trusting in God's way. And James says when we do that, we have no confidence that we're going to hear the, the, the Lord respond to our prayers the way we want him to. We have no confidence that he's going to give us the wisdom that we need to endure the trials that we're in. We need to be all in and seeking wisdom from the Lord. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because he's like a flower of the grass. He will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Again, it seems like James is schizophrenic here, right? Because we've been talking trials, and then we got to asking for wisdom, and now maybe, okay, we see the connection between trials and asking for wisdom, but now all of a sudden we're talking about the, the poor person boasting in their exaltation, and the rich person not putting their confidence in money because their money is going to pass away like a, 
a flower in the field that withers under the scorching heat. What is James doing and how does this all relate together? Well, this is where going back to the context helps us because remember in verse 1, James is writing to those who are in the dispersion, yes? The dispersion were those believing Christian uh, Jews at this time, because it's still early in the church age here, who had been driven from their homes by persecution, driven from their jobs, driven from the places that they held familiar and dear and comfortable to them. And they were having to start over from nothing with nothing. And so when James is writing about enduring trials and and this idea of wealth is something he comes back to a, a number of times in his letter, James is going after a trial that so many of his readers were going to be dealing with, and that is the trial of poverty. And so he's writing to them going, you want an example of what it looks like to find wisdom from God when you are enduring a trial? I know many of you are in a trial right now, he's saying, where you don't have a lot to your name. And you may be tempted to to think, man, if only I had money, things would be easier. But James is saying, no, no, no. If you're going to be boasting, boast in your exaltation. And you you think to yourself, well, what does a poor person have to, to be exalted by? Well, if he's a believer or she's a believer... They've got their standing in Christ. They've got a future inheritance that Peter talks about that's undefiled, that's unfading, that's being kept in heaven for them. And so James is saying, endure the trial by looking forward to your ultimate identity, your ultimate exaltation where you won't be impoverished, but you will be rich with with wealth that's undescribable, that's unattainable here on this earth because you will be in heaven with the Lord. And then he's also warning those who are rich, who may be a part of these churches and hearing this letter. He's saying to them, hey, look, your wisdom, don't boast in your wealth. Because the wealth that you have today could be gone tomorrow. Just ask any of these brothers and sisters who had to flee from their homes to avoid being killed for their faith in Christ. And so James is giving us an example. He's giving us an illustration in verses 9 through 11. But then he bookends it and he comes back in verse 12. Look what he says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's how we know that that this is what James is doing with the idea of asking for wisdom and this idea of the rich and poor because he's bookending things. He starts by talking about enduring trials and then in verse 12, he comes back and as he's transitioning out and the next week we're gonna talk about temptation. He says in verse 12, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who bears up under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James' bookend encourages us to endure trials finally by, by looking forward to that reward that's coming. And he holds out to this audience that he's writing to the, the crown of life. The crown of life. And we think about this, this audacious, like weighty gold, like ruby encrusted crown, but that's not what his original audience would have been thinking about. They would have been thinking about the victor's crowns. The crowns that were rewarded to those athletes who won the race. So Paul talks about receiving a crown. Jesus promises crowns. And here James is saying, look, if you will endure, you will receive the crown, he says, of life. The crown of life. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes letters to these seven churches. And in these seven letters that he writes to these churches, he's evaluating how they're doing. And he writes one to the church in Smyrna. And he says this, the words of the first and the last, this is verse 8 through 11, who died and came to life. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. In other words, I know your trials and your poverty, but you are rich, he says. Why? Because of their exalted status in Christ. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says this, do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trials. But he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's the crown of life again. Similar situation. Look, you need to endure what's coming at you. Even, he says, in this point, to the point of death, and you will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. The crown that is life. Life eternal. Those who would fall away when a trial arose and say, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm I'm not all about it. I'm not all in. This Christianity thing isn't for me because it's getting difficult. To those people, the writer of Hebrews wrote something that was quite sobering. He says this in verse 35 of chapter 10. He says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, the crown of life. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, If he abandons, if he pulls back, my soul, Jesus says, has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the flip side of enduring and gaining the crown of life is if you throw away your confidence in God and what you thought was faith, which really was just playing a game, if you throw that away, you have no confidence. But instead, you have the fear of judgment that awaits you. And so James is saying, look, endure, remain steadfast, and you will receive the crown of life. Because it's when we have endured, when our faith has been refined, as we talked about at the very beginning, and it's been proven to be the real deal, then we can expect to receive the reward, this crown of life for us. And that's what trials do for us. And with every passing trial, we can have greater and greater confidence in that future reward. Third point, finally tonight, is this. Confirm that reward. Confirm your reward through endurance. Confirm your reward through endurance. And this is where the battle rages. Because the temptation is going to be to take the easy out, to make the pain stop, to not look and ask, okay, God, give me wisdom to be able to understand what you're doing in my life through what hurts right now, through the pain and through the suffering that I'm enduring right now. That's going to be the temptation. But God is saying, endure, stay the course, and you will gain the crown of life. Do y'all remember, I think it was about a year ago, maybe in June, there was this soccer team from Thailand that got trapped in that cave. Did you guys follow that? And the water came in, and all of a sudden there was no out anymore. And they were in the cave, and they were terrified, and they didn't know what to do, and, and they got found, and these divers had to like get through tight openings to get back to them, and they actually had to take their, their air tanks off and pass them through one by one to be able to get through the, the openings. They were that tight. Like, it was not a fun passage to get back in there. And they would get back in there, and initially they were bringing food to the, the soccer team, and they were telling them, look, we're working on a way to try to get you out. We're looking at possibilities of drilling or, or whatever to, to, tr- to try to find another way to get you guys back out of here because the water's coming in. It's, it's not going to be long before the water comes all the way in, and, and, and y'all die because you're going to drown in this. And finally, they realize, you know what, it's, it's not the option that we would like to choose. It's, it's going to be difficult, but what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to take them out through this narrow opening underwater to get them out. And we're going to have to do it one by one. It's going to take a long time, and it's going to be laborious. And these, 
these young people that were, were leading through this who are not experienced scuba divers, this, this is not going to be an easy path for them to walk. Not walk, swim. And actually, they, they even ended up giving them a sedative, a, a, a small amount of sedative to, to calm their nerves before they took them through this, this path to get them out. But as you think about the trials that you go through, think about that, that soccer team that is going through those crevices in pitch black underwater, trusting the, the person that's guiding them out. And I'm sure that the, the, even with that sedative on board, the impulse was, no, I'm going to sit right here where I am. Let me go back. Let me go back to the rock and I'll just sit up there and you guys just keep bringing me food for the rest of my life. And when the water comes up for a season, just give me a scuba tank and I'll be good here because I'm better off here than I am going through this, this small opening. But yet at the same time, I'd imagine that their thought was with every inch that they moved through this, they were one inch closer to the reward, which was freedom, which was getting through, which was life on the other end. Y'all, sometimes we're going to go through those crevices in our lives. And it's, it's going to make us say, I don't want to be here. I want to go back to where I was. I want to go back to safety. I want to go back to what's comfortable. I want to go back to where I, I, I'm okay and, and this isn't, this doesn't hurt anymore. But at the same time, guys, if we do that, we're giving up so much. Instead, stay the course. Stay the course and know day by day. And for some of you, even minute by minute or hour by hour, that God is doing something through your pain. And that he's building up steadfastness through your pain. And that he's producing in you an endurance that's going to lead you to be more perfect and complete as a believer in Christ. And that ultimately, this is leading you to the crown of life. Which will make everything else in this world so worth it. When we get that crown, when we receive that crown. So for some of you who battle constant sickness, illness, Keep trusting the one who's going to bring you one day into that world where there is no more sickness, no more disease, no more brokenness. Maybe you struggle with depression. Keep trusting the one who's going to bring you one day into the world in which there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more dark days. Maybe you struggle with some sort of physical malady. Keep trusting the one who's going to prepare and is preparing for you a body, a glorified body that will never fail you. For some of you, maybe your, your family situation is bad. Keep trusting the one who is bringing you, who has already adopted you, as we've already looked at as, as in Romans, right? But who has adopted you and is leading you and is one day going to bring you into his perfect family forever and ever. Some of you may have financial problems, much like those in, in this letter that James was writing. Keep believing, trusting the one who's preparing for you an inheritance far greater than anything this world could offer you. Some of you have been betrayed. Keep trusting the one who's died for you and will never forsake you, but who promised you in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back for you. With so much focus on trials, maybe you're thinking something sounds off in this, that God seems like some sadist, but he's not. Because these trials are ultimately for your good. He's putting your faith through that workout. And when your faith survives the heat, you're going to find that you're even more confident in the coming crown of life that awaits you. 
you're trying to live a godly life in a godless world, you're going to encounter it's going to happen. God's going to allow trials to come to life. But he's going to do that because he loves you. Because what he's doing is he wants to see your faith confirmed. He wants to see steadfastness developed. And he wants to see you ultimately conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Let's pray together. God, I know in this room there are so many different kinds of trials and sufferings that are represented by those that are in here. Painful circumstances, difficult circumstances, circumstances that I can't even imagine. And some of them I I know about others are just kept between a person and the wall. But God, I know that each and every one of these trials for those who are believers, it, it has a purpose in their life. That you are doing something with it. That you are growing their faith, stretching their faith, faith, working out their faith so that it will be stronger, God. That you are preparing for them an inheritance that is unfading and undefiled. A future weight of glory, like Paul said, that's going to make this light momentary affliction seem like nothing. Lord, I know that's hard to believe right now when it hurts daily, when it hurts by the minute and by the hour. But Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith to hold fast to those things. Increase our trust that you are at work for our good in the midst of all of these things. We thank you, God, that we can find joy in the midst of trial, that there is hope no matter our circumstances if we know Christ as our Savior. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.